It is DeStazaPod. Welcome. What a wonderful privilege it is to talk with you guys. Uh, just coming off of a really excellent live stream this week where we brought back the Wheel of Knights and uh, what a fun mechanic that is, right? I don't know if you guys have seen our live streams yet. It's uh, Tuesday nights, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on twitch.tv slash Knights of the Slice. And I, I do think we have cultivated something that is unlike any other piece of content on the internet. It is truly a descent into madness. And uh, one of the questions this week was from our good friend Lance. He said, I've been checked out for a week. What is the Wheel of Nights? Well, I essentially scour the archives. I pull out a bunch of long sold out styles and I uh, put them up on the wheel that people can take a chance and spin for 2,500 bits, or they can get two spins for 5,000. And uh, then we spin and we see what kind of prize they win. Um, we've also uh, toyed with the idea of maybe having uh, different ethnicities on the board, and we're gonna spin the wheel, and whatever that lands on, Nikki and I have to do an impression of that for the entire show. Maybe an Irish brogue, uh, could be Italian, gesticulation, who knows? Um, so that would be a lot of fun too, and probably get us canceled. But for now, I think we'll stick with the Wheel of Knights, giving away free action figures to everybody who spins. Uh, you should definitely tune in. It's a lot of fun. But that's not why I'm here. I'm here to answer your questions for Q&A this week, and also give you a little bit of an update. Uh, so at the time of this recording, all of the action figure of the month for August have gone out. Admittedly, we're a little late this month. I was kind of holding out for this big shipment from China. It, of course, got delayed, and so I had to substitute September's figure for August's, and really that pushed us right to the last minute. So there are a couple unfortunate souls that will actually receive their package in September, even though it is the August figure. Uh, I never like when that happens, but it was sort of unavoidable this time. However, that does mean that September's figure is pretty much ready to go. So uh, this entire week, Patreon will be sort of charging all of the patrons for their pledges. And uh, once those are sort of secure, I will start sending out all of September's figures, which is the, the big one everybody's been waiting for, the brand new figure. So uh, we're excited about that. If you're not for some reason following us on Patreon, it is patreon.com slash Jesse DeStazio. And uh, I generally think people are getting their money's worth with uh, all of the podcasts, all the interviews, all of the behind-the-scenes content, all the unwanted and unasked-for songs and demos, uh, and then, obviously, the free toys. It's a hell of a lot of fun. Also coming up, I interviewed Tom on here, Tom underscore on underscore here, uh, one of the funniest guys on Twitter, one of the uh, writers of a very funny show called Truth Point, which was on Adult Swim, and one of the main guys in the Chapo FYM universe. Uh, very, very funny conversation. Consider it a primer into the world of Chapo FYM, which is the single thing that I'm watching the most, right? I've uh, got rid of Amazon Prime. I barely watch any of the other streaming platforms. 
I am watching, anytime I, I have downtime, I'm watching Chapo FYM streams, particularly their sort of YouTube video reviews. Consider it like America's Funniest Video, but for truly depraved creeps that they find online. It is it's some of the best stuff you can be watching. It, it truly does expose the dark underbelly of the internet. It, it changes you. You peer into the abyss, and you become the abyss, certainly. Uh, but we, I had a wonderful conversation with Tom. He's a very funny guy, very nice guy. And uh, patrons got a preview of that earlier this week. It will now be going live uh, on this Friday, which might be the same time you're listening to this. So, hey, full day of content. There is also a new YouTube video, a sort of random lot I picked up uh, online. Nikki and I unboxed it together. Um... I don't know. It's fun. If you like the sound of both our voices, it's not a bad thing to watch. That'll be live on Friday, 12 p.m. Eastern Time. And every Friday, 12 p.m. Eastern Time, we have a, a new Toy Pizza video. So you can check that out. YouTube.com slash Toy Pizza. And I believe that's everything you need to know. So with that out of the way, let's get right into questions. First question, as usual, comes from our friend Gordon McKinnon Hall. What are your thoughts on the German toy company Schleich? Uh, I got their Blizzard Bear and Ice Spider to display with my Archcore figures and have been impressed with the sculpting and painting. Um, briefly, Archcore, these figures look great. This is 135th scale, uh, hyper articulated. It, it almost looks like a model kit, but they are fully assembled. Uh, line of figures. This is distributed by Toys Alliance, who we all know and love due to their collaboration with the Annex World and Captain Peasy, Captain Tanner. Um, I have not had a moment to open up that figure, which I did order when I saw Gordon posted his pictures, so I'm looking forward to that. But on to Schleich, uh, I really like them. I, I like uh, their figurines. For people that don't know, Schleich typically do sort of pre-posed uh, statuesque uh, figures, kind of an old school sort of throwback, you know, not really action figures, but pretty dynamic sculpting, fun stuff that you would find at like a gift store, typically. A lot of craft stores carry like product, and I think they're great. I think they, they have a, a really good batch of artists who are there and, and can kind of tap into what people like about certain properties and do a basically like looks like version. Uh, I think if I'm not mistaken they did a sort of line that sort of looked like Assassin's Creed characters. They were just kind of hooded assassins and they did it so well that it was not infringement but it kind of scratched that itch if you wanted a character in that scale. So I, I generally I think they've you know, made some very impressive stuff. There's a couple play sets that look very cool. And I think they're, they're nice to kind of augment uh, your collection if you're into sort of three and three quarter inch, four inch scale figures. Next question, Trevor Petkiss, can you please tell the Jazzwares Trigun story? I first asked about it a long time ago and you said that it could be almost its own Distazapod episode. I asked a second time and you pretty much said that if you look online, you could find out for yourself. Even if that's the case, I would like to hear your take. Thanks. Um, so, 
I, I have to do a condensed version of this because it is um, it's too much going on. But essentially, uh, Jazzwares, while I was there, while I was, uh, I guess, lead designer and also heading up their specialty sales, uh, had the license for Genion pro- uh, Productions. Genion were doing a lot of anime translation and things like that. Um, I believe they had Samurai Champloo, and I believe that Trigon was under their slate as well. Uh, we had done a deal with them, and we did Samurai Champloo figures, which that's another separate story in and of itself. Ultimately, I really like those figures. They were not sort of how I wanted to articulate that line. Uh, and our plans for Series 2 really were going to be pretty dynamic and, and amazing, but uh, it did not get to uh, a Series 2, unfortunately. So uh, we started to develop Trigun, and we, uh, we actually tooled Trigun figures. We got very, very far along in the process. So there were essentially a, a complete production of fully painted, fully articulated Trigun figures. I would rate these as, these were like a uh, C plus B minus effort, which is saying a lot for Jazzwares in that day because we always really struggled with price point and quality plastics and and decent uh, paint apps. That was something that was still very elusive to the company at that time. You look at them today, especially with their Fortnite line, and it's those are amazing toys. Those are probably the best value you're gonna get uh, for your buck within the toy aisle. But it, it was not always the case there. Um, so we had, you know, these pretty decent Trigun figures that I was happy with. Again, the focus was really delivering a value uh, to mall-based stores and places like Toys R Us it was not about sort of doing a Mezco or NECA level adult collector. This was like, you know, we're trying to be able to sell something to teenagers who have limited funds that are watching Adult Swim and, you know, and things like that. So I think it was a pretty successful product. Uh, the crux came when there was a Toy Fair meeting between myself and Jenny Ann's US people and... Uh, Jenny Ann's Japanese uh, sort of overlords, bosses, who didn't speak any English. And we went through the entire line and I showed them everything and to my recollection, they approved everything. At least that was my understanding leaving that meeting. They sort of signed off on the project and gave us the go-ahead to move into production. Uh, now, I can't speak for what happened on Jenny Ann's side but we came to a head where they were insisting that there was never any approval given to anything and they wanted everything re-sculpted. Now, I've dealt with a lot of different Japanese companies in my time and I have had these sort of, uh, these situations that feel like gaslighting, right? Where you're told one thing and then the sentiment behind that changes uh, seemingly out of the blue and you're sort of pushed back to square one. I've had to deal with this many, many times over, so I don't really know if this was sort of a machination or if this was honestly a misunderstanding. 
But in any case, uh, my counterpart at Genion was fired. Uh, I wasn't really chastised because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't do anything wrong. I sort of saw through the project to my understanding. But the, the real issue was I didn't get anything in writing after the meeting. I sort of took um, the people I was meeting with at face value and, you know, felt like it was a positive meeting. But I, I definitely, being sort of young in the industry and not knowing any better, I didn't do any follow-up emails to, like, paper what was discussed and what was approved. So there was a situation where there was all this product that was made and ready to ship, and the license was, uh, I wouldn't say revoked, but it was, un- you know, this was unapproved goods. And I don't know what happened beyond that. I didn't, I wasn't at Jazzwares much longer afterwards. I, I moved uh, to New York City. But some of it did show up on the black market. You know, the, the product exists. It's out there. I don't know who ultimately got a hold of it. But I did see some pop up on eBay. A quick search I did this morning showed that none were there. Uh, none were sort of currently available. So it's just one of those sort of vapor toy lines. Never officially released. And uh, I'll, you know, I'll never have the full story. And that is, of course, a kind of truncated version of it. But that's, uh, that's what went down with Jazzwares and Trigun. Skipping the order here, going to a fantastic question from Daniel Hartzler. Last week, you answered a question and brought up that toy companies were no longer, uh, sorry, toys were no longer the main focus of toy companies. Besides the obvious licensing deals to be made, what is the primary manufacturing focus of large toy companies? Uh, Thank you for clarifying. I'm speaking about sort of large companies, publicly traded companies, uh, your Hasbro's, your Mattel's, etc. Their primary focus, believe it or not, is press releases for films, right? For Netflix deals, for writer's rooms that they've set up. Uh, The reason this is the primary focus is because it makes the board very happy. And when you're a company this size, keeping the board happy is really your bottom line, keeping their dividends paying out uh, higher and higher year after year. Board members also uh, typically are people who are already wealthy. They're not sort of sitting on the board as a means to uh, make their first million. They're already established. They tend to be older. They tend to be uh, retirees. Um, These press releases, these Hollywood uh, bits of glitter, these also have a promise, right, for board members. That means there's going to be a premiere. That means there's going to be cocktail parties uh, around the promotion of this film. There's going to be a presentation at Cannes. And guess what? You're a board member, so you get to go there. You're going to get to hobnob with Chris Hemsworth or Ridley Scott or whoever the sort of talent attached to these uh, promised movie franchises are. And all of that is incredibly flattering to board members. Um, But it's all smoke and mirrors, right? Largely. For every film or new franchise announced by these companies, very little actually comes to pass. Uh, If you ever sort of need proof of this, look at how Hasbro has handled all their sort of non-G.I. Joe and Transformer IP, right? There is a history of all these press releases 
about a new cinematic universe, about a new writer's room, about new projects, and how much of it has actually come to fruition, has become real things, right? Very, very little. So, uh, from my perspective, I think that's the business that they're in. It's keeping their board happy, it's doing these press releases about upcoming media, and, uh, you know, at that level, why would you be concerned with action figures and things like that? Outbound licensing is also a huge portion of revenue for companies like Hasbro and Mattel. Now, obviously, making toys and selling toys in, in you know the global market is what generates money for them, but they are also making money off of their IP that goes out to other companies. You know, Super 7 holds the license for quite a few of these smaller brands that uh, Hasbro may not have interest in doing themselves, or think of all the ancillary items that Hasbro is never going to manufacture, like t-shirts, posters, things like that. That's all outbound licensing. That's all additional revenue coming in. Next question up from Lance Tomimoto. How do you rate current fast food toy prizes? Any interest or are they hot garbage? We grew up in a great era of Muppet Baby Racers, Looney Tunes, DC figures, Burger King, Universal Monsters, so it's tough to beat. Um, You know, I love quick service restaurant prizes and toys. Uh, I have uh, two of the displays that were in a McDonald's for the Rescue Rangers line, which is really great. And then that that famed DC Looney Tunes uh, series, which I, I think is probably the high watermark for fast food toys, right? Like, that's that's about as good as it gets. It was, was a fantastic line. I don't think it's been outdone since. Now, because I haven't eaten fast food in, I would guess, easily a decade... I don't really have a good finger on the pulse of what's currently sort of being offered. Also, when it comes to fast food, I'm foreshadowing a little bit here, but there is an expert out in the world, and I'm going to be talking to him soon. My next sort of quote-unquote celebrity interview on Dostazapod is uh, somebody of high esteem, and fast food is his current forte, but he's had quite a life prior to that, and I'm very much looking forward to speaking to this guest and uh, sharing that podcast with you guys. Maybe I can get his input on this as well. Um, The only uh, sort of contemporary fast food prize that's come across my way recently has been the Arby's Shovel Knight um, prize, which was just kind of a little disc that it's like a shooter disc with a Shovel Knight sticker on top and it came with a sticker pack. Pretty like you know, low intensive effort, but for me, it's interesting. I love Shovel Knight quite a bit. Um, you know, I had the privilege of working on the brand uh, many years ago, and it's just kind of cool to see an indie game end up in a you know a quick service restaurant. Beyond that, I, I don't have a really good read on you know what may or may not be popular. Um, if you guys have uh, a strong feeling, and there are sort of recent sets of kids meal toys that I should be checking out uh, I'd love to hear from you I'd love to sort of learn more about those things I do have quite an extensive collection Um, I also very very briefly worked as a designer for uh, what ended up being some subway kids meals I know I've talked about this before on Dostazapod I think I've even shared photos of some of the very chintzy toys that I designed for this uh, kid's meal. Um, I think if you go back 
on the Patreon, you can probably dig deep enough and find them. But, you know, generally, uh, I feel very warmly about these items. Um, you know, for me, a typical weekend was getting picked up by my great-grandparents. Uh, we would sort of go to a restaurant, uh, you know, a sort of fast food joint. Um, Roy Rogers was a personal favorite of theirs. And we would, of course, get the kids meals, me and my sisters. And, you know, we would have to trade our prizes and figure out which one we wanted and things like that. Uh, and then, of course, we would go to a toy store and we would have a $5 budget. We could get anything for $5. Back then, that was, uh, you know, that was two G.I. Joe guys. So that's not a bad uh, sort of allowance. And so, um, you know, I, I that's sort of... The fast food element is kind of part of the toy buying ritual, even though I don't really engage in it today, uh, I do have a lot of fond memories about it. Shifting gears here, or should I say stepping on pedals, we're moving over to Mike Johnson. How much have you dropped on your new music equipment? This is a great question. You know, I love to talk at great lengths about the horrible music that I've been making for more than a year now. Um, I would say 95% of the instruments I have are all secondhand. So I've gotten them for very dirt cheap. Uh, the downside to that is most of them are not in working order. <laughs> There's a lot of glitching and, uh, you know, wires popping out. If you watched our live stream on Tuesday, you saw that in real time. Uh, that's, that's on me because I refuse to buy new things. Um, I have, however, purchased a couple key components that you kind of really have to buy new. You don't want to buy secondhand. Um, pedals, effects pedals, are very expensive and uh, in the secondhand market. So if you can get a modern update of a classic effects pedal, um, that's pretty much a good idea to do. Loop pedals in particular, because I play everything by myself, yet I somehow achieve a, a sort of full band sound. Looping pedals are really a key crucial part of my experiment because I can sort of play a couple chords, I can record it and it plays back instantly live and then I can play on top of that. So those are a couple components that I have bought new and paid money for. Um, I think also the Volca drum machine that I have was also bought new but bought on sale. But I would say um, you can get a setup like mine for about a thousand dollars, and that is that includes a hell of a lot of different sounds and devices that make noise. I I've probably exceeded that thousand um, dollars just because, you know, much like toy collecting, this tends to uh, <laughs> gain momentum, and you keep thinking of these little holes in your collection that would really fill in the sound. And, uh, you know, you can become a bit obsessive about uh, instruments and devices and, and synthesizers. So I think, you know, reasonably, you could spend about $1,000 and get the setup that I have downstairs. If anyone is sort of interested in, in dipping a toe into sort of making music by yourself, um, there are a couple things I would point to. Uh, you know, I think that there is kind of like a perfect kit that is the least amount of money you could spend that will give you the most uh, bang for your buck. And I would say, like my micro Korg is the centerpiece of 
my sound. And they're relatively cheap. There's probably also, like, uh, cheaper versions of this idea of a synthesizer that you can get um, that are not made by Korg. Korg is, I think, kind of a premium brand. But if you can just get yourself a micro Korg, you can build out pretty much everything from there. Uh, I would also say a loop pedal, if you are going to be playing by yourself, is going to be pretty crucial to filling in different parts of a song. Um, I have not figured out the right solution for drum, for a sort of drum machine. The Pocket Engineer, uh, Pocket Engineering, make very affordable, tiny little drum kits and programmable sort of uh, sequencers. Um, those are really affordable. Those are really could potentially be the solution for drums, but uh, it's a bit of a steep learning curve, and I, I truly have never figured out that machine flawlessly. I, I you know, I'm still kind of learning the ins and outs. It's a very quirky, sort of Swedish uh, piece of equipment. So um, I think if you have a microcorg, you have a pocket engineering and you actually spend the time to learn it. Uh, and then from there, you're going to want some kind of bass sound. You can achieve that with a micro Korg and a loop pedal. Um, but I also have like a bunch of like off-brand little Casio keyboards that sound very circuit bent, but they're just really shitty cheap ones. And you can kind of uh, loop that and... Uh, also, you can get really good effects pedals that sort of have a ton of different settings. Digitech make a bunch of different effects processors, and they kind of have foot pedals on them, and they have multiple, multiple settings. They're incredibly cheap right now. You can get one for like 20, 30 bucks, and that's going to have, I think the one I have down there has like 60 different settings. That's going to manipulate your sound in every imaginable way. Um, so plugging a cheap Casio knockoff into that will give you this really otherworldly sound. Um, so, you know, I think with those kind of components, you, you may want a microphone as well, although Microcorg does have a mic. Uh, it is largely for sort of the vocoder. You can kind of have a robotic sounding uh, effect going on when you sing into the microphone. Um, you know, those kind of key pieces uh, you can probably get, you know, I would say for like 500 bucks, all this stuff, and you can sort of have your own experimental setup where you can, uh, just start making noise, right? That's the whole point. Next question from Lucas Jones. How did you meet Matt of Onel Design? Uh, I believe I've told this story at great length previously. I could not tell you the episode number, uh, but a brief truncated version uh, I was working as a intern, I believe an unpaid intern at that point, at San Diego Comic-Con. And this was my first time ever going to a convention. I don't know how I was such a huge fan of flea markets, of comics, of toys, and I never once thought to go to a convention. So it wasn't until I was in my early 20s that I went to my first one. And, uh, you know, it was the, the, the biggest one there is. Uh, I was sort of like setting up a booth, I think it was before the show had opened, uh, and Jeremy Sung, Spy Magician, who I was friends with through 
the RTM message board. I don't know how many people are old enough or know what the RTM was, but that was the single, that was the hub, man. That that was like what, I guess, Froosh is today. And uh, Jeremy and I had, you know, always had a correspondence. We got along really well. He introduced me to a lot of Microman stuff I didn't know existed. He would send me all this fantastic stuff from California that was imported from Japan that I just didn't have access to on the East Coast. And he introduced me to this towering guy who was wearing shorts, which is not out of place in San Diego, but still. And uh, he was carrying this garbage bag, if I recall correctly. This, this, you know, memory tends to fudge things, but uh, he started showing me all these books he had made and all these hand-carved figures. And this was Matt Dowdy, and he was sort of walking me through his mythology. He had made his own micro-show booklets. And I immediately connected with it because it was the same stories I had been trying to tell. It was the same sort of figures I would make had I had any sculpting ability. You know, it was uh, it was my dream sort of realized uh, just from a different person. And we immediately hit it off. We, you know, really became very close friends. We corresponded a lot. We always ran into each other at different shows. Um, you know, at that point, I believe, uh, you know, shortly thereafter, he started doing New York Comic Con, which was a great opportunity for us to, you know, hang out on my turf. Um, just, uh, you know, very close, very warm relationship. And it wasn't until many years late into our relationship that the opportunity to work together became a reality. Um, you know, I think that sometimes relationships can sort of be founded on a transaction. Like, I want this person to help me create a toy, I want, you know, I want something from them, or vice versa. We were fortunate enough that that wasn't the, the crux of, you know, our friendship. It, uh, the thought of working together just, I don't think, ever really came up until uh, it was time to do it. So, uh, that is the very brief story of how I met Matt Dowdy. Another fantastic question here, this one from our friend Charlie Pope. Can you give some insight into how you made your story Bible? I'm working on my own and it feels like an organized mess. L-O-L, which stands for laugh out loud, for those of you who don't know. Uh, This is a fantastic question. And um, recently, a good friend of mine I saw in person, famous author author, uh, Steve Vera, he was in town. Uh, He said to me that uh, my suggestion to him to do bullet point skeletons changed the way he writes for the better. Now, I'm paraphrasing. He probably was not that, uh, you know, um, heaping of applause. But he did say that fundamentally it it helped him quite a bit. And this is an established, thrice-published author. You know, this is the real deal. Um, So... Let me convey that sort of technique to you as well. I think it will really help you. The artist's condition is one of excess and imagination and grandeur. And that actually works to your disadvantage when it comes time to sort of put together your ideas in a way that can be communicated to other people, which is a a, a crucial and essential step 
in getting your larger message out there. So when it comes to putting together a style guide, a pitch deck, a story bible, a collected works, uh, or a version of, you know, my, I have this story so far on my website, which kind of lays out nearly all of the narrative in hopefully a cohesive linear fashion. Um, when it comes to these things, your sort of imagination and your creativity works against you because this is a very right brain procedure and you are likely to be inclined to be a left brain type of person. Um, so what I always do with every project, regardless of if it's a comic book, if it's a full-length graphic novel, if it's a postcard, if it's a short story, I break it down to the bare minimum amount of text I can put on a page. And that is what I call the bullet point skeleton. So um, let's take the story of Cray meeting Hob, right? That is actually an animatic with minimal animation that exists as a, you know, a clip you can watch on YouTube, but it didn't start that way. It started off as this bullet point skeleton, this very simple, here's the first thing that happens, here's the second thing that happens, here's the third thing that happens, here's the fourth thing that happens, all the way down until I had the entire animatic broken down into single sentences of action. What needs to take place in this story? And it will also behoove you to sort of not be flowerly, flowerly in your descriptions, to just simply try to use one sentence, maybe two sentences, and just describe what has to happen in this scene. Uh, I apply the same technique when it comes to breaking down comic books and writing scripts for comic books. What is the crucial things that have to happen in this single panel on a page full of 12 panels? And how can I communicate that with the least amount of words possible? So if I was approaching a story bible that I had to show somebody like Disney or Pixar, Four Nights of the Slice, I would simply make it a list of everything that that story bible needs to include. Who are the characters, right? That's probably 80% uh, of the bullet points you want to have. Uh, what are the themes? What are the storylines? What are the locations, the settings? You can just break these down as single sentence bullet points. And I would highly advise anyone who has a creative pursuit, just start there. If you can't do that basic foundational work, your idea is probably not that good, right? And you probably need to spend some more time thinking about it and sketching and iterating. Uh, if you find that these bullet points flow out of you, like a dam has been uncorked, then you're on the right project. You're at the right time in your lifespan to sort of tackle this. And try this out. You know, I, I think it's a, it's a technique that served me very well, and I've heard from other people that it served them as well. Um, I think you will do good with it. And I think that, you know, the main problem here is our imaginations are so vast, it's hard to sort of wrangle that. It's hard to, to uh, put your arms around it and shape it into something consumable. So with the bullet point skeleton, I think uh, you'll do exactly what you need to do. Next question, Gabe Tovar, did you ever have any of the Joyride Halo toys? I only had the seven inch scale ones when I was a kid, but it's easily one of my favorite toys growing up. I used to carry him around and have adventures with him and Sigma Six Snake Eyes, another great toy. To this day, it still holds up rather well. 
in both look and posing. It could be nostalgia, but it felt ahead of its time. I would say the entire uh, Joyride video game collection was really uh, quite in a league of its own. Now, some figures have not sort of appreciated well and, and may not have been on the onset particularly well done. The Samus Aran, which was really the only Metroid toy we had for a long time, uh, had some really uh, terrible articulation. I believe you couldn't move her shoulders. You could just sort of twist them at the bicep. Uh, but still, this was one of the first companies that kind of brought these characters to life. Uh, I did have the Halo toys. I had both the Warthog with the minifigures and both versions of Master Chief. They sort of had an updated one a little later on. Despite not ever playing Halo, I really love those figures. And in fact, a couple months ago at the local flea market, I was able to find that later version, which I agree with you still holds up to this day. The articulation is really good. It's a sturdy figure. It's not going to fall apart. And I love the electroplated orange that makes up the visor for Master Chief. I, I just think it's such a, a fantastic effect. I love it. So uh, I'm with you. I think that whole line is underappreciated. They do kind of fetch a high price nowadays, but uh, definitely a very worthy toy line from back in the day that doesn't get its due. Keith Joy's got an interesting question here. Is there a definitive Star Marshal? Is there a name to put to the unhelmeted head, much like Saima, Raddick, Marson, Vaughn's head sculpt? Uh, or is it best to think of the Star Marshal in a similar way to the Rift Killer, Device Ninja, and Hackerman? Um, I, I don't really think there's a definitive Star Marshal. I think Star Marshal is more of a rank, right? It is a, a sort of law enforcement personality within the universe of Knights of the Slice. Uh, of which there are many different individual characters who occupy that role. Um, for me, like, the definitive one is probably John Killknife. Uh, that's a figure I've wanted to make for a long time. And, you know, you know all my warm feelings behind that character. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think your mileage may vary. Everybody may have a sort of definitive take on who Star Marshal is. But, uh, yeah, there's not, like, a inert personality attached to that human head sculpt uh, or this sort of costume. It really uh, it was meant to play a lot of different roles, and I, I think it has. It's been successful in that regard. Wrapping up our last couple questions here, what are some movies or one movie you didn't initially like but appreciated it much more after years have passed? This is from our good friend Eric Valverde. Um, I would say uh, film Ad Astra, when I saw it, lit left me very split. I sort of really liked it and disliked it at the same time. I saw it actually when I was over in Japan. Uh, it was in English but with Japanese subtitles. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just wasn't quite sure how I felt about it. Since then, I've rewatched it quite a few times, and I really, really do like that movie. I think it's... I, I never hear anybody talking about it except for me and Dowdy, and uh, it's, I think, a really fantastic piece of work. Uh, if you guys haven't seen it, I highly recommend it, and I would love to hear what you think of it. Next question from Red. Has anything in particular personally or story-wise been the driver for more metallic colorways this year in Knights of the Slice? Or does it just happen to line up with the figure run plans 
Others are also doing at the factory. Really ha happy to see more metal swirls in Glios again. Uh, I can't speak to what other creators are running. I, I don't really have any insight into that necessarily. And my line is kind of planned independently of that. Um, for me, you know, the driver was really getting Catclaw done this year. Because that's an old hero that's sort of been in my shortlist for a very long time. Um, so... Uh, I initially was going to sort of release Catclaw and then much later release the material style, but I was just messing around and I matched the metallic silver armor to that red body and I was like, oh, this is too good. I, I have to, <laughs> I sort of have to move this up in the list. So that's why there's been a sort of deluge of different star marshals. Um, I, I can't say there was any sort of intentional thought in getting more metallics out there other than it's you know it's a color that I really like and that's incredibly versatile um, you know I think you can match almost any head with a metallic base body and it sort of works and looks good uh, it's also worth noting the store at this point I think we've nearly achieved my long-term goal which was to have kind of one style of every figure in stock at all times um, there's a couple holes in this plan for sure, but the majority of uh, different styles that we sort of tooled, you can get at least a material version, if not a fully painted version. So uh, I think that that's important to acknowledge because we've talked about that on, you know, many, many previous Distazapods as being a stage we'd like to get to. And I think we're, we're pretty much there. So the ideal experience for somebody who's new to Knights of the Slice is to land on our store and be able to pick out, uh, you know, at least one figure from every style that we've run. And uh, it looks like we're really closing in on that. So that's, that's good. Final question from Jeremy Price. I really like how the poncho from the Cherubium kit is a soft plastic rather than cloth. What are the reasons behind this decision? Um, well, you know, cloth is, is good and I like cloth accessories. Uh, but they do not hold form or detail very well, obviously. And there are limits to what you can do with cloth. Uh, so there was always this idea in the back of my head. I wanted really bulky sort of armor. I wanted kind of, uh, you know, just something that could be applied to almost any figure and dramatically change the narrative of that character. And so I set Irwin about kind of making this this sort of outer shell, if you will. And uh, the decision to sort of shoot it in 85 degree PVC versus the normal 90-95 PVC, which the figures are shot in, uh, was, you know, a necessity in order to make sure it could fit around multiple body types. And I do think it's successful in that regard. Uh, it will be interesting to kind of mix up this poncho set with real cloth underneath, which I've experimented with in my own workshop, uh, I don't really have a release that's going to feature that anytime soon, but I, I think that uh, for customizers out there, that's, that's an interesting key you should probably look into. And with that, all of your questions have been answered. Thank you guys for submitting some really good ones yet again this week. Uh, there's a very interesting interview coming up within the next probably 7 to 10 days, so keep your eyes peeled for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. 
Uh, new videos on Friday, 12 p.m. on youtube.com slash toypizza. Don't forget our Twitch streams Tuesday nights. And uh, that's it. That's all I got for you. Peace out.